0: Good morning, um, I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, my name is Samson Eaton for those of you who do not know me. Um, my wife Libby and I have two children, Ezekiel and Nathaniel, and by God's grace we have a third child on the way. Um, you might be asking why I'm up here, uh, Tim Sanford asked me to give the sermon review for the next few weeks. so. Um <clears throat> Last two weeks, we focused on Acts 18. Caleb gave a two-part sermon series um, called In and Out of Season. And in the first part of that uh, sermon series, we walked through the faithful example recorded for us in life of Paul uh, during his time in Corinth. Paul's heart for discipleship is in all seasons of life is reflected in Galatians 6 9. Paul records here both a promise and a call to action. The glorious truth of this verse and all of Scripture is that all God's commands are undergirded with promises. God's promise here is that the laborer will be rewarded for their work. The call to action girded, girding this promise is to remain faithful to the task set before us. Caleb walked us through the last few uh, verses of Acts 18 last week, um, and the attention is moved away from Paul and focuses on a new character in the book of Acts named Apollos. We are told that God raises up this mighty man, Apollos, and that he's dedicated the word of God, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, and the discipleship of the brethren. Luke records an important detail in those verses about Apollos, and then he says that Apollos doesn't have the whole picture yet. He believed truthfully, but he had not heard the final chapter of God's progressive long-enduring revelation of the Messiah and Jesus Christ. Conversely, the Jews back in Corinth received the same Old Testament that Apollos did, but they did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Apollos understood correctly that Jesus was the purpose, the subject, and the vision of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, in other words, the Old Testament. The law was written with the intent that the Christ in Jesus would be revealed. This is why Paul, Silas, Timothy, and now Apollos, in this chapter go to such great lengths to declare that not just to the Jews but also to the Gentiles that Jesus is the Messiah. Caleb gave us some excellent discipleship applications um, drawing from Acts 18 the last couple weeks. He defined discipleship as doing life together with Christ in mind. We stand on the hands and shoulders of the men and women long gone before us. Our bond is in, our, in the scriptures and our unity is in the spirit. This was central to the Christian experience then, and it is now central as well for authentic Christianity. It was the discipleship of Paul and the early church that grew exponentially to what we now experience as the church today. We believe in the faith once for all, delivered to the saints, in other words. Caleb gave three essential points on what is and what discipleship does. Um, Discipleship is essential. Discipleship is essential to the Christian development and maturity and success. Success is defined according to the Bible, not our world standards. Discipleship is also exponential. Disciples replicate. It is a repeatable process in the life of the church and for the life of the church. God is at work. He is using us as the body of Christ to bring the fullness of God's glory into display. Discipleship is also eternal. Jesus is the subject and purpose of discipleship. Therefore, it is an eternal enterprise. And you might be wondering, how is this lofty view of discipleship attainable? It seems radically impossible. Caleb began his sermon series um, focusing on 2 Timothy 3:16 through 17 and chapter 4, verse 2. I appreciate what Caleb said here because the foundation of those verses laid out is Implicit in what Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Apollos go through in Acts 18. And, and, that, and the, a big idea of that is in and out of season living is possible because of the ministry of the word. We wait well as Christians. We work with passion, watch with anticipation for God, and withstand the waves of life in the Christian life on the foundation of the word of God. Remember what we said earlier, that there is no command in Scripture that is not undergirded by a promise from God. It is only in the power of the gospel and the Spirit's ministry and the word to us that we are able to do the work of the ministry of discipleship. Now I'd like to turn it over to Tim as we walk into Acts 19. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank you, Samson. I appreciate that. Hopefully, as Thank you, dude. As he has um, just shared that with you, that um, reminds you of what uh, Caleb was talking about here in chapter 18, because it's going to overlap with us as we get into chapter 19. So if you want to open your Bibles with me, Acts chapter 19, we'll get started there. Let me put on the screen here for us um, a map for you as you're turning there. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of an overview picture of what we're going to be talking about Acts chapter 19 starts what we call Paul's third missionary journey. If you remember, at the end of verse, or chapter 18, he's headed back to Jerusalem. Remember, he goes to this town of Ephesus, and they want him to stay longer than just the Sabbath that he was there. And he says, I can't do that. I need to get back to Jerusalem. But by God's will, I'll come back to you. All right, And then he left, and that completed, that finished, as he returned back to Jerusalem and Antioch, that finished out that second journey of his. Well, now he starts his third journey. And if you're looking on the screen there, you'll see this town of Antioch there above that word Syria. And uh, he starts out there. Notice that this is a land journey for quite a ways here. A lot of territory that he covers. And, and this goes through this Galatia area and then into Asia. And, and that part of Asia, just so you know they would um, um, say that that corresponds to Texas and Louisiana for us. So that gives you a sense of the, of the geography there, how big this area of Asia was, Texas and Louisiana. And you'll see he, he goes through and eventually he comes to this town of Ephesus. And that's what we're going to pick up Here in Acts 19. Before I leave this, I want I want you to see something because it's going to show up later, and I want you to keep it in mind. Not today, but probably in about four weeks or so, he's going to make this trip up past Philippi, Berea, down into Athens, over to Corinth. Then he's going to return back all through there. You'll notice he does not come back to Ephesus. He comes to a little town in Miletus. You'll see this in Acts chapter 20, and he's going to say, "Hey, you elders there in the church at Ephesus, I want you to come talk to me because I'm not going to see you ever again." I got some things to say to you guys, and that's important for us because as we look at this whole thing uh, of chapter 19, Luke is um, he is giving us some highlights. He's not going to dive deep into uh, different details. He's going to give us an overview, and uh, we're going to spend three weeks talking about this chapter. Now the first one today is going to be a bit of a foundation. It's going to be trying to build this up because this is exactly what Luke does. He kind of lays something there for us in these first seven verses. Then he's going to talk about what I'll call the meat and potatoes of this time, a little over two and a half years or so that Paul is in this town and in this area and the impact that he has, and then ultimately how that shows up in regards to a worship Of a false god Diana or Artemis depending on if you're a Roman or or Greek so we're gonna build over these three weeks so stay with me on this but one of the things that we find out about this town is that they uh, they have this worship of Diana as I said a temple beautiful temple that was built It's an extravagant town. You have Greek culture. You have Roman power all combining together. What a town this is. But when we read about this town in Revelation, which it shows up in chapter 2, there's going to be a condemnation that the Lord gives to this town. And that condemnation is going to be this. You've left your first love. He's going to speak against them. He's going to actually speak about six other towns that are in that area as well. But for Ephesus, he says, my problem with you guys is that you've left your first love. Now, backing up for just a minute, what we're going to find is that a a couple named Priscilla and Aquila show up here, and Apollos shows up here paul himself is going to spend time here for over two and a half years or so he's going to teach daily he's going to have performed miracles that are actually described as unusual i thought miracles themselves were unusual but this is like to tell you they're unusual unusual miracles right he's going to send timothy he's going to send tychicus In other words, God is sending messengers to this town and speaking to them and discipling them and encouraging them and building this up. We have a church established, tremendous. We actually get a letter from Paul written to this very town. Now, we don't have time to talk about that, but if you read that letter, you're going to find that Paul is going to tell these people all that they are in Christ. And in light of that, then he's going to say, well, this is how you ought to be living. And then John, in the book of Revelation, is going to write and say, hey guys, Spirit of God says, I got something against you. You've left your first love. So with all that God has provided, all the richness of that, we find then ultimately this town, this church that starts in this town, walks away. We're going to leave it. And he's charging them, come back to me. So, so something that we see through all of this is as God is doing marvelous things, we as people often fail him, don't we? But he loves us and he cares for us and he continues to provide for us. So we've seen then, as, uh, he was, as Samson was telling us, that, that Apollos comes from... Uh, 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 or sorry, not Apollos, but Paul and uh, Priscilla and Aquila come from Corinth over there on the left and make it over here to Ephesus. And Paul stays there just a little bit of a week or so, and then he leaves. But he leaves this Priscilla and Aquila there, all right? And that's the story then when Apollos shows up. They're the ones who get a chance to disciple him. And he goes back then to Corinth, and he's teaching there. And while he's teaching there, now we start into Acts chapter 19. Let's get to this. It says it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, we've not so much as heard whether there is, whether there is a spirit, a Holy Spirit. Now I love this starting out, it happened. I love that because it catches our attention because we can recognize that with God nothing just happens, right? We understand that. Think about this. Paul has come from Corinth with Aquila and Priscilla, and he has come to this town of Ephesus, and he stopped there long enough to engage with those people for enough for them to say, Hey, we want you to stay and tell us. Talk to us. I can't do that. I'll come back. But I'll leave Priscilla and Aquila here. This couple, according to what Scripture tells us, had been booted out of Italy. They've been forced to leave their home. They had moved to Corinth. That's where they engaged with Paul. They were tent makers together, and so they worked together, and he was discipling them, and then they moved with him to Ephesus, and now they're there. Isn't it interesting that God has taken a couple, moved them out of their home location, moved them out of where they've moved, moved them to another place, and that's where he ties them in with an individual called Apollos, and he begins to teach Apollos, through them. And we know that it was very effective because Apollos turns around, goes back to Corinth, and teaches there and shows that Jesus is the Christ. He learned that through Aquila and Priscilla. Disciplers, just mere tent makers, just people who just did their job, somehow got engaged with Paul, and next thing you know, the Lord is using them. To my knowledge, as we jump into 19, they're still there. But while Paulus is gone, Paul shows up. And I thought, and this actually dawned on me this morning. Why is it that God didn't use Aquila and Priscilla? Or why is it that God didn't use Apollos? What we're going to find in these next few verses is that the disciples that he's talking about here are people who are just like Apollos. They understood John the Baptist's message. They had actually been baptized believing that message. Why did God not use Apollos to tell them? He matches. We just saw at the end of chapter 18, he went through the same thing. Aquila and Priscilla had to teach. Why didn't he use Aquila and Priscilla? They evidently were effective with Apollos. All of that happened. I'll tell you why. Because for God, he gets the preeminence. The glory always goes to him. You see, in our logical minds, it's like, oh, well, you need to use these guys. You used them once. You kind of gave them the run in here. Now use them here. We're going to get this thing going, right? Oh, you got a policy. Okay, you fixed him. He's back around the right kind of thinking. Well, use him here. He knows exactly what these guys are thinking. Use him. No, 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 no. That's human way of thinking. God says, listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring my boy in from up the northern, the upper regions here, and I'm going to bring him down in here. And I'm going to have him talk to these guys because guess what? I have a much bigger plan than just 12 individuals coming to know me. I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying he sees things that we don't see. And what's going to happen in this region of Ephesus is phenomenal. I would submit to you that what we learn out of Acts and what we learn out of the book of Ephesians is, I don't know if I can say, incalculable. Is that right? Did I pronounce that right? Like, like, Guys, this is mind-blowing kind of stuff that we see in this, all right? So, So he comes there, and he finds these disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So notice his terminology is implying he fully expects that if you're a believer, the Spirit of God lives within you, right? That's normal. That is the common Christian experience. When you trust in Jesus Christ, the work that he did on the cross, you believe that That paid for your sin debt. And I put my confidence in what he did as a satisfaction to the heart of God. He accepted it. I accepted it. Now I'm saved instantaneously. The Spirit of God comes to indwell us. We'll talk about that in just a bit. So there's an expectation when you believe this should have happened. Something about these individuals was causing Paul to ask that question, to wonder about that. And they said to him... We've not so much as heard whether there is a spirit. Now, I don't know, maybe they didn't actually know that there was a spirit of God. It's hard for me to believe that. If they were disciples of John, John the Baptist anyways, he knew that there was a spirit of God. And he, as he taught his disciples, uh, he would have, I believe, would have taught them that. So it seems like more what they're saying is, we, we, don't, we haven't even heard if the spirit of God has come. Like, we've, we've been told about this, but we don't know if that's even happened, right? So Paul goes on with them, and he says to them, so, okay, you you didn't quite give me the answer I was hoping for, so let me dig a little deeper into what, then, were you baptized? Now, you have to understand that, okay, so uh, we have our, if you're not familiar, we have baptismal right here under the floor here. That's where those pictures were taken. And um, a number of those individuals, in fact, most of them, if not all of them, had been saved for quite a while before they were baptized in our culture, we probably haven't grasped the importance of a person getting saved and then being baptized. In some cases, we do that because we're a little bit fearful that we think that if we link those two closely together, people will think that that's part of their salvation. It's not. Just so you know, so you're clear, that if you put your trust in Christ for your salvation, and then you were to die without ever being baptized, guess what? You're still going to heaven right? It has nothing to do with your salvation, and it has nothing to do with the washing of sin from you. We had uh, little kids come up afterwards, and we encouraged them, well, come see it. We we wanted to kind of dispel some of the mystique of, of that, believing that eventually those kids might actually be baptized themselves. And so we encouraged them, well, actually touch the water. Nobody was afraid. Don't touch that water! You'll get sin on you because it's all been washed off. Heaven forbid that the 20th person who got baptized, you know, like we should have drained it every time, right, Mark? Like, if that's true. Silly kind of thinking. So he says here, uh, um, into what then were you baptized? There's an expectation again on Paul's part if you're a believer, you were baptized because that's what happened. Do you remember as we've gone through this book of Acts? Remember the Philippian jailer? We're talking in the middle of the night. The whole household becomes believers, and they all get baptized then. It was very common. Why? Because they understood the concept of baptism. They weren't linking it together with their salvation. They understood that it was, it was a, a testimony, a picture, then of what God did. We're going to talk about that in a minute, too, here. So he said, <clears throat> uh, they said, well, we've been baptized into John's baptism. We've been baptized, but it's, it's what John, was t- John the Baptist they're talking about. Now, just uh, so you remember... Caleb told us last week, he said, that was a baptism unto repentance. John was saying, hey, I'm a herald. Hello. There's one coming behind me who's greater than I am. You need to be trusting in him, and therefore you need to change your thinking about your sin and your ways, and you need to look to him. And they said, we believe that. We put our trust in that. Okay. And to show that we're going to be baptized under John's baptism. That's what that was about. had nothing to do with their salvation in the sense of a picture of that. It was more of an identification with this message that John was giving. We believe that. So they're looking. Where is he? Where's this one that John, where's the greater one that comes? They're looking for that. And these are the kinds of people that Paul comes into contact with, and they tell him, this. that helps Paul understand, ah, this is what their thinking is. So Paul says to them in verse 4, So John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance. That's exactly, you guys got that right. That's what he was doing. But he's saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, and that is on Christ Jesus. So now he does what Aquila and Priscilla did with Apollos. He introduces what you guys are looking for. I'm telling you that's Jesus the Christ. That's who that is. And they respond to him. They hear that. It tells us then next, it says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That tells us there's a response. to A message is given, Paul tells them this, and they say, you know what? We're putting our trust in it. We believe that, and we're going to identify by baptism. We're going to show you that. Notice that it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Nowhere is that stated in regards to John. Nobody is is baptized in the name of John the Baptist. And the difference is this. When it says in the name of Jesus, it's telling you, it's like saying in the authority of Jesus. They're saying, I will be baptized under the name of Jesus so that you know I believe what he did for me. I trust in that message. So we're seeing believers here being baptized in the name of Jesus. And that's what we saw here in the baptismal. Now, this word baptism, it shows up, right, in these last three verses that we've just been looking at. I want to make sure, I want to pause here just a bit and talk a little bit about this since we had a baptismal uh, just last Sunday. And I don't know if you were there for that or not, but I think it's important for us to be mindful of some things because I believe that what Paul or what Luke rather is doing here in this Acts 19 is he's beginning to build his case and he's going to set us up then for the next grouping of verses that we're going to talk about next week. So let's talk about this word baptism. Now, just so you know, here's a definition for it it is to be placed into or introduced into so that you take on the qualities and characteristics of what that new union is. I'll describe that in a minute. This word, baptism, we actually don't have in our English, or we didn't have in our English. And so what we did is we borrowed it. We took it out of its original language, Greek, and we just brought it right over into our own language. We kind of kept it pretty much the same. There's a little uh, uh, letter ending, that kind of thing that changed. But we basically borrowed the word right in. In other words, we didn't have, well, here's this word baptizo in the Greek, and uh, there's our English word for that, and that means this. We didn't have that. We had nothing to tell us this. So we said, okay, we're going to take that, we're going to borrow. But when we borrow, we need to say, well, what does that word mean? That's what we're borrowing as well. We know this word, we know what it means, and we're going to use it in that context. And so this word was a common term. That's why in the days of old, when these guys were baptized, it wasn't uncommon. They already knew this word. This is how they used it. To repeat it, placed into or introduced into, so that you take on the qualities and characteristics of that new union, whatever you're engaged with. Let me illustrate it twice for you. One, these people came to this baptismal, and we had water in this. We actually found out that we had a little bit of a leak, so (laughs) thanks to Mark, we filled it back up. So we had water at the beginning anyways. And guess what? When those people were brought into union with that water, they came out wet. You all saw it. on video right not a single person that was placed into that baptismal came out dry why because they were baptized they were brought into union with water and they came out with some characteristics and qualities of water they were wet they were a bit slippery right like whatever other terms you want to use for that some they couldn't breathe it i thought mark was going to pull the noses out of some of those guys didn't you What? we're bringing you out. I'm coming out, right? They close their nose because we're incompatible with water getting into our lungs. That doesn't work for us. So those are some of the qualities and characteristics that when a person is baptized in water, they take on. A common way that this would be used and probably one that you've heard illustrated many times is that they would take a garment and they would dunk it down into a dye, a vat of dye, and when that garment came out, guess what? It took on the qualities and characteristics of the dye. Whatever color that dye was, that's the color that that garment was, right? So this was common for them. They understood that, and, and so they, when, they, when they talk about being baptized, they understand, ah, it's something being placed into union with something else, and when it comes out of that, it has qualities and characteristics of whatever it was placed in. Now that's important for us, for our own walk with the Lord. Let's talk about a couple things here. You're going to see then, if you continue to study this subject, you're going to see this phrase, baptism with the Spirit. And the operative word here is with, at least for my lesson today. In other words, this phrase is telling us that the Spirit of God was that substance, if I could use that term to continue the communication, was that substance to which we were placed into, an identification with, some kind of interaction there so that we have the qualities and characteristics at some degree, at some level, with the Spirit of God. This phrase is talking about... god the father causing his spirit to indwell you as a believer that happened the moment that you got saved that's why paul when he came to these guys and he asked them did you receive the spirit he was a bit surprised what you haven't what wait a minute to what were you baptized Then he's wanting to dig a little deeper find out are they really believers so that baptism with the spirit is when the Spirit of God, the moment that I put my trust in Him, the Spirit of God comes in and dwells every believer at that moment. Now this is a game changer for us, just so you know, okay? Never before, always in the Old Testament, you see coming to the temple. Guess what was there? The Shekinah glory. The representation of the presence of God. But now, as believers, the presence of God right here within us. I've been a believer, I've told you this before, I've been a believer for so long, it's lost its luster. Shame on me for that, to tell you the truth. And I love reading about things like this because it reminds me again, are you kidding me? I have the Spirit of God living within me now. And so there's qualities and characteristics. In other words, he's going to live out, the Spirit of God is going to live out, as I yield to him, the life of Christ. That's what he does. He's representing. He's showing the life. It's not me. Oh, what does he look like? I'll try to act like that. No, it's yielding to the Spirit of God and allowing him to do that, right? I don't have much time to deal with that one, so we're going to actually have a BTC class in the fall on the ministry of the Spirit of God. You might want to come and hear some of that, but there's another phrase, and that's baptism by the Spirit. You see the difference? Instead of with, now we're talking by. And when you guys know English well enough to know that what we're talking about here is this then is something that the Spirit of God does. It's baptism by. If you look at something that was built and it was made by Tim Sanford, right? Like, oh, you know, Tim did the work on that. Well, that's telling us that the Spirit of God is doing the work. This phrase is referring to something that also happened at the moment that I got saved. Same for you if you're a believer. At the moment that you were saved. What this phrase is talking about is the Spirit of God took you and placed you into the body of Christ. He identified you with Christ is what he did. That's what that's talking about. This is another game changer. Water baptism, let me get hair to this, water baptism is an illustration, what these people did up here last Sunday, is an illustration of their identifying with Christ... They're just picturing it. They're just showing in a, in a water baptism kind of illustration what baptism by the Spirit actually did, where the Spirit of God placed us into the body of Christ, and that matters, right? So our, it's an illustration of our identifying with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, according to Romans 6.1. Do you have your Bibles? Turn with me to Romans 6.1. <clears throat> Real quick here, before we run out of all of our time, I guess I need eyeballs for this. Romans 6.1. Now, in the context of this, Paul is speaking to them, to believers, and uh, they say this question, which is crazy, based on their understanding as they were growing in it of grace, they say, what shall we, uh, verse 1, uh, Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, certainly not. I I think it wasn't like, well, certainly not. I think it was like, are you crazy? Like, what are you thinking? You see, they, they, they had this warped mentality like, oh, well, if God's grace is being poured out on us, well, then maybe if we just continue to sin, then that means more grace is being poured out, and then we get to elevate this grace. And shouldn't we, maybe we should just do that. Should we continue in this? And he says, no, that's crazy. Let me tell you why that's crazy. And now he's going to talk about some theology. He says, how shall we, verse, uh, middle of verse two, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? what look at me do i look dead to you well don't answer that question i don't feel dead what's he talking about how in the world could i have died to sin what do you mean by that it comes back to what we've been talking about baptism by the spirit i've been placed you've been placed at the moment of your salvation into the body of christ so when paul says this it's because he understands that god sees you as having been identified with his son and so he says then keep going or do you not know or do you not know apollos and these disciples they didn't know and some of us we don't know either and so guess what god does in his grace he teaches us and he tells us the truth and just like apollos we have an opportunity to listen to that and go oh lord that makes sense to me Oh, man, I'm going to function according to that truth. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized, notice past tense that he's saying, in regard, because he's teaching to believers. There's the expectation. This happened at the moment of your salvation. Do you not know that many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? And so I referenced that when we had the baptism, that that when these people are going into the water, they're illustrating for us this truth right here, that we're identified with him in his death. But then it goes on to say in verse 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ, in other words, if that's true, then this second part is true, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And there they come up out of the water, right? With the qualities and characteristics of water, now illustrating, guess what? I was identified with Christ. I died with him. What does that mean for me? Oh, I've got to move my slides. I'm sorry. I keep telling things here getting too fast. I'm going to come back to this one. Come on. Did I miss it? I missed it someplace. Doesn't matter. I'll get there to it. <clears throat> what he's telling them with this baptism is he's saying, guess what, guys? When you died with him, the truth is, is that sin no longer reigns in your mortal body. That's why we need to understand that. Or at least one of the reasons why we need to understand. That I now choose to sin. I don't have to sin you see when i was an unbeliever i had no other choice without the spirit of god living within me without a regeneration that occurred at that moment of salvation i had no other choice but now something's changed it's another game changer if i don't understand that then i sit here and i have temptations come and i think well i have no choice in the matter you know so and so hit me and i had no choice i had to get angry that's not true you choose to get angry is what you do, or any other sin that you commit. You know what the converse of that is? You can also choose not to sin. Ha <laughs> ha! Is that incredible or what? You talk about freedom. I don't have to do this. You mean the thing that, that so easily besets me? Remember Hebrews talking about the sin that so easily besets me? I don't have to, I don't have to succumb to that? Are you kidding me? Yes. In the power of the Spirit of God, He enables us to say no to that. But it's not just no, 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 no. It's also then to walk in newness of life. That now, in identification with Christ, I've been raised to newness of life. Zoe life is what the word would be. This is not biological life. This is spiritual life. This is God's life imparted to me i have life and i'm not just talking like abundant life here that's what he said right i've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly so now it doesn't matter about my circumstances they're not the thing that controls whether i'm enjoying life or not it's the understanding i have god's life it's mine it's eternal it will never end so I get to live in such a way that the Spirit of God living within me is radiating out that very life of Jesus through mine so that when people see me, they should be seeing Him. And there's an identification together. No wonder this is important to us. Sorry, I've got to keep moving. You'll have to come to the BTC. I'll leave you right there. So, verse 6, let's keep talking. So when Paul had laid hands on them, so they uh, accept his message, right? Baptized in that. And then it says, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. Okay. Why did we need to know 12? <laughs> he doesn't actually explain that. Do you remember as we've gone through our study of, of Acts, we, we've, we've seen something like this before. Remember in Acts chapter 2, here's a bunch of believing jews already right believing jews but they haven't received the spirit of god until the day of pentecost and that begins the church age right we've already gone through this skip forward to acts chapter 8 we see the first samaritans remember they're part jew part gentile we see the first uh, samaritans accepting christ and guess what happens to them? Oh, I should have said it with the Jews. Guess what? The proof of that, the Spirit of God comes on them, and what happens? Blah, 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 speaking in tongues. That wasn't speaking in tongues. That was garbly gook, just so you know. I can't actually speak in tongues, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but there's proof. Then we go to Acts chapter 8, Samaritans. Guess what happens there? The the apostles down in Jerusalem, you remember we talked all about this, the apostles down in Jerusalem hear about these guys getting saved, and they come up and they lay their hands on them, and that's when the Spirit of God comes on those guys. And then if you go forward to Acts chapter 10, now we have Cornelius' house, and he's the first, he and his household, first Gentiles to come to trust Christ for their salvation, and guess what happens there too? When they believe, the Spirit of God comes upon them, and they speak in tongues too. And now we have this one. And for some reason, God is actually making sure that a fourth grouping is described to us. And he tells us this. Paul laid his hands on them, and the Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied, is what they did. Now, we're going to get into this in more detail eventually, because when we're done with the book of Acts, we're going to take about six weeks. We're going to go back into a number of things through this book that we haven't had time to stop and really dig deep, and this is going to be one of them, Signs and Wonders. We're going to talk about that uh, on one of our Sundays, but I want to spend just a minute here to give you a little bit of a preview of that. What is the significance of this? Why would we see this recorded in Acts chapter 2? Why is it that it's a laying on of the hands in Acts chapter 8? Why is it speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 10? And why is it now also speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 19? What's the purpose? Scripture defines it for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 21 and 22 says this and totally cleans it up for us. It says, In the law is written, So in other words, this was prophesied. This was thought of by God way, way back in time. And he's saying, this is what's going to happen. So Paul writing to those in Corinth, which by the way, these guys fought over, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, they're a pretty carnal bunch. And Paul has to clean things up. He has to write to them. And here's a number of things that you guys are asking questions about that I'm going to rectify. I'm going to clarify for you. And this is one of them here. In the law is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. Who's he talking about there? Again, part of our study of the Word of God is context helps us to understand. So when you go back into the law, you find out that the law was written to the nation of Israel, Right? that's who this people are talking about so when he says with men of other tongues and other lips in other words with foreigners to the jewish nation we would call those gentiles foreigners with other tongues i'm going to speak to this people to these jews and yet for all of that they're still not going to hear and the nation as a as a whole so to speak not every individual but by and large the nation rejected christ Therefore, verse 22, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So we see then this significance of this sign in the four places that it's being used, always recorded so that the unbelieving Jew understands what is happening. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Do you remember this? The Spirit of God comes upon them, and what do the unbelieving Jews say? Oh, these guys are drunk. They, they've been in the sauce a little bit too much, right? And Peter says, hey, oh, whoa, whoa, time out, time out. No, no, this is early in the day, people. Don't be thinking that. What you're seeing is what was prophesied. It's the Spirit of God who's come. And he begins to challenge them like, oh, what do we need to do then? What do we do about this, right? It captivated their hearts. If you remember with the Samaritans, guess what? The Jew and the Samaritan, eh, eh, no, we're going around that, right? Like, we don't want anything to do with those people. You guys worship here, but you really should be worshiping down here in Jerusalem and all this animosity between them. So now they become believers, and guess what God does? He brings some of his boys up. Hey, come on, <laughs> go up there. Now, talk. you're going to find out. They're actually, salvation is for them too and they put their hands on him, right? There's an identification then, is what that is. And now with these Gentiles, oh my word, who in the, Peter, going to the house of the Gentiles, are you kidding me? Do you remember in the next chapter, Peter has to give an argument, well, what was I supposed to do? This sheet came down, and well, you're telling me that I should have resisted. Are you kidding me? And they go, oh, we get it, we understand it. How do we know that the Gentiles have salvation too? Because the Spirit of God came on them. And how do we know the Spirit of God came on them? Because they spoke in tongues. It was a sign for the skeptical, I don't know if this is right. Well, how are you going to explain that then, right? So what God has done is given us an accurate record of the first Jew, the first Samaritan, the first Gentile, and now this fourth group. I believe that what he's talking about here, these guys, there's only 12 of them at this particular point, I believe that they not only is God providing salvation across ethnicities, but he also provides it across time. Meaning that at the day of Pentecost, that began the church age. Well, what about those who were looking forward to this coming Messiah and passed across that day? What about them? Ah, we can see from these. Guess what? Salvation is for them too. It's not like they're standing over here going, what, what? Uh, The dispensation of of the law ended, and now it's into grace. And what about me? What about me? Like, don't leave me behind. Wait, wait. That's not what's happening, right? All of that is taken care of. God looks at everyone the same and says, it's salvation for all of y'all. That's good Southern talk, isn't it? For everyone. Well, we're in Southern Asia, so we might as well say it that way. Okay? It's for everyone, including these two and we got to close here because we're over time, but look what happens now. I'm going to just cheat just a little. So now Paul has arrived at this town of Ephesus, and the battle is on, people. (laughs) Watch what we see in this chapter 19. But right away, Paul is brought by the Spirit of God to this group, 12 individuals, And walks them through a better understanding and now we have believers and from this core we're going to see i'm cheating here we're going to see the entire area as big as texas and louisiana combined all hear the gospel it's going to spread so let's pick 13 of us and we're going to go down to texas and louisiana and we're going to get this done and we got a little over two years to get it done anybody willing to sign up for this some of us are going, uh, no, I don't want to leave my home. <gasps> I got an issue here with you. You see, just like Apollos and, or I mean, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who were disciples of Christ, by the way, that means a follower of Christ. That means he leads, we follow. He gets the privilege of saying, hey, children, I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your location. I want you to leave your job. This is where I want to use you. And if he's doing that for just one individual, an Apollos, that's his business. He knows if he's going to use the Apollos in someone else's life, in someone else's life, in someone else's life. That's not our business. That's his business. So we get to respond to him, and we get to trust him in our Louisiana and Texas area, and we actually might see him do what he does here because he is powerful and you talk about the triumph of the gospel, as we'll see in these next number of verses. So if you're able, come back next week. We'll keep on rolling with this. All right, let me pray. <clears throat> Father, honestly, we are astounded. We, um, I'll just say it. In first reading through this, Lord, uh, it's like, what is this about? Why, why would you tell us these details? Why is this a historical record for us? What's the significance? But the more that we study it, and the more that significance is borne out, uh, it just rocks us back on our heels. It just really kind of, whoa, Lord, you, you're amazing. The things that you do and I could see, Father, why, okay, you know, Paul's a heavy hitter, so I wouldn't use him for all this. But you don't need heavy hitters. You, you're a God who, you're a heavy hitter. You don't need them. You use him. And here's a guy who calls himself the least, and yet you, you, you've used him marvelously. <clears throat> and we're so grateful for that, and we're so grateful for the context of Ephesus and All that we're going to read about in the story here and the truth that Paul wrote to this group too, it has huge ramifications on us, Lord, and we cannot thank you enough. The more we understand what you've declared to be true about us, the more we are awed by you. Thank you for revealing that kind of truth to us because you're worthy of that kind of awe. And We pray that it would just come pouring out of our hearts Because we're learning more and more about you. How incredible is it that your spirit would be living within us? Oh, oh, man. Might we learn to trust him. To be led by him. To walk with him. To allow him to live the life of the wonderful Savior through our bodies. That in and of itself is a miracle. And if that would captivate other hearts around us, wow, God. So we rejoice with you because you are marvelous in what you do, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.